which is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruin. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. How are we? Good? Surviving the cold? All right. We got some folks on vacation today. What's up? Everybody, did you guys take a, like a Alaskan Christian cruise and not tell me about it? Yeah. None of us found out about it, right? They found out I was preaching again? All right. I see how it is. Well, welcome for those of you who are brave enough. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Chris. Chris, did you already go down? Good friend Chris Dawkins back to uh, give Ricky a break this morning, give him a day. Uh, day of rest, and uh, thank you, Chris, for covering for Ricky and uh, just being a friend for many years. First um, John chapter three. Grab your Bible. That's where we're going to be. Just in a minute, we're going to pick up where we left off last time. We're going to finish up chapter three today and uh, be ready to move on to chapter four in the coming weeks. As you're turning, let me uh, let me say welcome to those of you who might be here for the first time or the first time in a long time. In the bottom right-hand corner of the bulletin, if you got a bulletin, uh, there is our guest portion of the bulletin. And uh, do us a favor, tear that out uh, before you leave, fill it out as much or as little as you like, and here's what you do with it. You drop it in the brown wooden box at the back of this room on the table. That's where we as a church give our tithes and offerings, and uh, we do so with great joy. Amen? Amen. Amen. And um, all we ask of you if you're visiting with us is not your tithe or your offering, but simply that you make that guest card or your gift to us for today. We'd love to have a record of your visit and be able to pray for you uh, and answer any questions that you might have. Um, let me give you a couple of announcements uh, or highlight a couple things that are in your bulletin. Um, Elder Radley, Chef Radley, asked me to make sure you get signed up for our churchwide Thanksgiving uh, fellowship meal, which is going to be November 19th. That's a Wednesday night here in the, uh, in the fellowship hall. And you just need to sign up on the back sheet back there. There's also an email going around so you can uh, indicate exactly what you might like to bring. I think, think he's going to take care of all the main dishes and then we're bringing the sides. I think that's how it's working. So uh, highlight that and make sure you sign up on the bulletin board between the uh, restrooms on the main hall. And then also I want to highlight the fact that um, we are doing uh, the Christmas toy and breakfast at Beef O'Brady's again this year, December 20th. Is that right, Steve? December 20th. All right, we're online. We're good to go for December 20th at Beef O'Brady's. And so uh, we're looking forward to that. We'll begin collecting toys here. And, of course, we'll be giving away the Toys for Tots toys that are collected at our local Publix, as we have in the last few years. All right? I think that's all I need to highlight from there. Let's jump in. First John chapter 3. Here's what he's going to have to say to us in verse 19. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. And whatever our heart condemns us, For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank You that You have given us Your Word, that it is no idle word, as Moses once said. It's an alive, active Word. We're to employ it for our daily living. Lord, if we we open Your Word and we read it and we walk away from it and do nothing differently, if we if we don't allow it to shape us and change us, then it is an idle word and it's not being employed in our life. And so, Lord, we we declare as we begin that we will not just hear Your Word. We will let it shape us inside and out. Where our life looks different from the truth of Your Holy Scripture, Lord, we commit to change with the help of Your Holy Spirit. It's our prayer this morning in Jesus' name, our cornerstone. Amen. The Apostle John is the author of our current letter. John's an old man. He's the grandfather of the faith for this first century church. In his old age, John has grown in wisdom. He's seen a lot, hasn't he? 
you spend a significant amount of time with the Savior, that, that, that changes a person. And in his years, I imagine that his wisdom has increased. Not just his, uh, not just his street wisdom, but his spiritual wisdom. I and mean, maybe you know this, if you're at least 30s, you, you've probably realized that there's still more for you out there, spiritually speaking, to learn. That probably in your 40s you're going to know stuff that you just didn't know in your 30s. You may have thought you knew in your 30s, but you're smart enough now, even in your 30s, to know that in your 40s there's probably going to be at least a different perspective on the things that you know in your 30s. And then if you're in your 40s, the same thing for your 50s, and on and on and on. Well, John, John's up there, man, and he's, he's kind of looking back, and he's reaching back into the church, and he's, he's, got, some, he's got some real wisdom John, he is able to speak to the church, I think, from that wisdom in a way that just almost, as they're reading it, they've got to be thinking he's reading, he's reading our minds, he's reading our, our hearts. The passage for today is really, is really part of last week's passage, okay? It, it's really part of the context, the immediate context of last week's passage where we started verse 11 and went down through 18. It really can't be separated from it, but for the sake of time, and also so that we highlighted the point, the specific point of the previous passage, I, I separated it out. But really, as now I'm teaching it today, I want to I at least say to you, it could have been very well attached, because you can't really separate it and let it stand on its own without, without really doing some strange things with it. it. It's a difficult passage. I mean, just the very grammar of the passage today, it's a little bit twisty. Okay. The wording is a little difficult. You could move some punctuation around in this passage today and it could say some different things. It could make it a little clearer even. We might do a little bit of that. Let me, let me, just, let me just say here as an aside, maybe you don't know this, but, but the punctuation that you have recorded in your scripture, that's not inspired. Okay? Everybody good with that? Did you, did you know that? Right? The little numbers that you have in your Bible, those aren't inspired either. If you've got some notes off to the side, those aren't inspired either. Where it says the chapter, that wasn't inspired. None of that was in the original authorship. None of that was in the divine inspired giving to the apostle. And so it's okay. If you need to move a comma around, then that's us trying to help, help figure out for, through the original language exactly what the author is trying to say. So today, today's a little bit of a twisty passage. And so if you look at it separate from last week's passage, it, it really gets difficult. So let me remind you as we start, of the general context of John's writing, but also then the immediate context coming off of last week. Because as you notice, the first verse today said, we will know by this, and that this is referring to something he's already said. So the general context, you'll remember, is this. That John is writing this letter in his, in his very latter years. He's the only apostle that remains. And he's writing back to a church that has been tossed to and fro. They've got a number of outside voices and inside voices in the congregation that are telling them, no, Christianity looks like this. No, Jesus really meant this. No, if you're really a Christian, here's how you do it. And, and it's getting really confusing to them, especially those who are newer in their faith. And, I mean, this is first century, and so this is, this is a new thing for everyone, right? But now as the apostles are dying off and Jesus is gone, things can get a little squirrely, Right? People can start taking some of the teachings in, in directions that they were never intended to go. And so, so John's got to hold us to the truth. His real intent of the letter, it seems to be, though, as he addresses the, the letter to little children, little children, over and over, it just seems like this grandfather's heart is coming out. It seems like the major intent of his writing here for the, for the general context of the letter is to make sure that, the, that the, the Christians in the body, they don't lose hope. They don't get so discouraged by all the influences that are, that are in the church and those that are surrounding the church, telling them that, no, this is what Christianity looks like. No, this is what Jesus really meant. He doesn't want them to get so discouraged that they give up, they give up all hope. Most likely he's heard back from some in their congregation that have said, hey, John, what about this? And this guy's saying this. What about this? And so he writes to set some things straight. He writes so that they can, they can take a deep breath. So that these new Christians, right, who've got all these confusing teachings maybe coming at them, can just take a deep breath and relax and have confidence and assurance in who they are and what Jesus has done for them. 
Now that, that's a helpful letter, right? The immediate context that we saw last week was that as John's been going through some of these litmus tests, we've called them, for what, what really makes us Christian, we saw last week that he, he focused in on love. Let me read back quickly through last week's passage because, again, today's passage really doesn't need to be separated. If we, if we do that, then I think we lose the immediate context and we, we might get off base. For this, back to verse 11, this is the message which you have heard from the beginning. And so John will over and over say to them, listen, nothing's changed. What Jesus taught, what we first taught, nothing's changed here. You don't need any more information. You certainly don't need any less. The message is still the same that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And he reckons back to some of the teachings of Jesus. And then in verse 12, he, he, he kind of he surprises us, shocks us with his example here. How are we to love? Well, verse 12, not as Cain loved. He was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. All right? So you hear that grandfather's heart back to the little children in the church? And as he has all throughout the book, he's, he's helping to draw some definite lines so that they know who they are, so that they know who's, who's really of Jesus and who's, who's just a fraud, who's just pretending. And so he warns them, don't be surprised. The world hates you. We know, knowledge is key here, that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So one of the, one of the ways that he gave them to... To be assured is that they'll have this instinctive love for the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. As compared to passed out of death, the beginning of the verse, he who doesn't love still lives in death. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. There's that word abiding again, and we're going to see it in our passage today. Then he gives us the ultimate example. Verse 16, we know love by this. So it's as if John says, okay, I've told you that one of the ways you'll know that you are who you think you are is by your love for the brethren. Okay, what does that love look like? I'm going to tell you, he says, and the ultimate example for John is always Jesus. We know love by this, that he, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So Jesus is our example, verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? You remember what we said there? That he goes from this ultimate example of Jesus, and he could have just stopped right there, but he doesn't do that. He goes from, this is, this is what Jesus did, this is what we should do, and he didn't close with a prayer and a song. He moves on and he says, but listen, let, let's, get, let's get specific here, because I don't want to just leave you in the general teaching of love the brethren. Like that, that theoretical make-believe brethren that's out there. He says, let's look specifically at a test case. Because this is how it fleshes out in you. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need closes his hand? No. Closes his heart. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, verse 18, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's not just a theoretical. John says, listen, this should, this should come out in your life in real ways. You want an example? Look at Jesus. You want, you want, an, even, you want an even more down-to-earth example for you than if you got stuff and you close your heart, i.e. closing your hand with your stuff, and you keep it when someone else needs it? That's not love. Our God who who took on flesh and let go of his deity, was willing to give up his stuff, so to speak, as the ultimate example, if he was willing to do that, and you've got some stuff you're holding on to, then how do you abide in him? All right? So that, that's, the, that's the immediate context. All right? That's our review and fast forward. We good? Verse 19, it's a continuation of his thought. So we will know by this. Now I want you to notice a phrase that he's going to start with here and he's also going to end with. Because there's, there's a phrase and then a couple key words that I think you need to make note of here. The phrase is, we will know by this. Or in the English Standard Version, how does it, how does it say it? By this we shall 
know. And it's the uh, English Standard Version that will be on your screen this morning. By this we shall know, he mentions at the beginning of verse 19, then he comes back to it in the second half of verse 24 as if these were bookends, if you were, to this paragraph. And so his focus here is going to be on, on what we need to know. What do you need to know to help you understand who you are in Christ? What do you need to know to understand who's a fraud and who's not? And so little children, as he's come off the previous verse, little children need to understand that we love not just with word or with our tongues. We don't just talk about it, but we, we let go and we open our hearts and we open our hands and we show our love sacrificially just like Christ showed his love. And so then in 19 he comes down, this is how we will know that we are of the truth. You see the connection? So, truth. If you want to circle a word as a key word for this passage, it's going to be one of two words. It's going to be truth and it's going to be heart. And these words are going to kind of play off of each other and have different emphasis, but they're the two most important words maybe in this paragraph. By this we will know at the beginning and then at the end he's going to come back. By this we will know and he's going to kind of, he's going to kind of book into this whole passage saying there, there's something you have to understand here. Truth is going to be a big part of it and your heart is going to be a big part of it. Truth in a postmodern world is subjective and really nobody has the corner market on it, right? Our world would tell you, our media would tell you, uh, popular opinion would tell you that truth is really uh, truth to you and that you and I have no right to say that someone else's truth is not legitimate truth, right? I mean, that's just kind of how the world works today. John would not be of that opinion. John would say that there is a truth that is a standard for us all. He would go on to say that that truth is in, in a person. So in a world, even back in John's day, when truth was somewhat subjective, he's going to tell us that God is truth and that Jesus is truth. And our lives are to be judged by our relationship to the truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth. So if we, if we fall in line, little children, if we fall in line with verses 11 through 18, then it should, it should help us know that we are of the truth. That we belong to Him who is the truth. And here's what He says it'll do in verse 19 and verse 20. It will assure our heart before Him in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Let me read it to you in the English Standard Version that you have on your screen. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. So one key word would be truth. The other key word would be heart here. And of course, heart in our passage, and very often in the Scripture, isn't, isn't referring to the muscle in your chest. It is, of course, referring to your conscience. And your conscience, he's going to say, can be sometimes wrong. And maybe you didn't know that. I mean, maybe you followed, even in your Christian life, the old adage that um, let your conscience be your God. Uh, that's okay as long as your conscience is nailed to the truth. Your conscience has to be informed by something. Your heart has to be informed by a set of standards and truths. And if, you're, if your heart, your conscience, is aligned with a standard that is a correct standard, not just a subjective, wishy-washy, whatever you want it to be standard, but if your conscience is aligned to the standard, to the truth that he referred to, then, then you can trust your conscience, can't you? What we're going to find out, though, is that even in the Christian journey, our conscience could be deceiving. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you thought that you could, you could fully now, that you've been born again, trust your own heart, your own conscience. John's going to say otherwise. And here, here's the deal, church. I'm, man, I'm so glad he says otherwise because it makes a whole lot more sense in my world. 
uh, read a story of a guy who uh, owed the IRS a lot of money. He was able to uh, sear his heart, sear his conscience for many years. And uh, over time, the money uh, just began to uh, add up and add up and fees upon fees. And it, uh, it got the best of him until one night he just decided that uh, he was going to have to do something about it because he couldn't go to sleep anymore. It was keeping him awake at night. And so one night, late into the evening, early into the morning, he still wasn't able to sleep. And so he finally just, in frustration, got up, went and got his checkbook, wrote a check to the IRS for $150 and put a note in, in the envelope that said, Dear IRS, here's a check for $150. If I can't get to sleep after this, I'll consider sending you the rest. Okay. Or, uh, uh, maybe he was listening to part of his conscience. A uh, kindergartner said it well when asked by his teacher, does anyone know what your conscience is? And he said, that thing that makes you tell your mom before your sister tells. Okay. Um, as, we, as we jump into this, I, I, want you to, I want you to know something. I think, th- I think this is along the lines of what John, Grandfather John, wants his readers to know, which include you and I. Um, our relationship with God ought not be one where we are living in, in fear or in darkness or in hiding from Him. The truth about God is that He knows you completely already. In fact, He knows you better than you know yourself, doesn't He? John Stott theologian, he said it this way in regards to this passage. He says, there are at least three actors in this spiritual drama. Track with me here for a second. Three speakers in this inward debate. It's kind of a trial going on, as John explains it. A trial with our own heart as the accuser, with ourselves as the defendant, and God as the judge. makes a little sense. We will know by this, or by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. I think what John knows in his wisdom as he's writing this letter to the church, I mean, he's said some pretty strong stuff here. He's made some pretty clear statements as to what a Christian looks like. I think John's wise enough in his, in his latter years to know that the hearts of those little children are probably doing what your heart has been doing throughout this series. It's been checking itself. Well, what about me? When he says that Christians look like this, frauds look like this, as he's done the whole letter, your heart has probably been, been a little twisted, a little concerned, to say the least. You've probably been inspecting your own life, wondering as you leave this place, well, I hope hope I'm good on that one. I don't know. I think that's why this ending paragraph in chapter 3 is here. I think that's why he's tagged on here to the end after last week's passage, this paragraph. Because he knows our hearts are fickle. He knows our hearts often will condemn us in a way or to a degree that the Father would not want them to. And so, He's taught us what love is. He's given us Jesus as the example. He's given us a real life example. A sacrificial picture. We're not just to, to talk about our love. We're not just to let it be the words that we speak. But we're, we're to love in deed and in truth. And as we sit back, with the original readers and we start to survey our own heart and our own mind and our own life, we're wondering, is that us? How often is it us? Is it, is it a good description of us often enough? Or is it, is it not often enough a good description of us? Where, where do we line up on that paradigm? And it's as if John just kind of says, hey, listen, listen. By this we shall know that we are of the truth 
I mean, if you're doing these things, John says, if this is, if this is you, I mean, if you're the guy who's, who's not closed his heart off, if you're lovering the brethren in these ways, then guess what? You get the assurance of heart. And notice where you get it. You get it before him. You get it in his presence. That's the idea here. Little children, take, take great comfort in the fact that, that in the presence of your God, your Creator, you can rest assured. And, verse 20, whenever your heart condemns you in those moments, check this out. God is greater than your heart. In fact, He knows everything. I thought about, as I was preparing for this message, I thought about just doing that sentence and that sentence alone. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you, if, you, if you get it. To the, to the one who's, whose heart is twisted after, after Apostle John has now been explaining to us chapter after chapter what it really looks like to be a Christian. And there are some frauds. And those guys that are going that way, they're not, they're not of us. But little children, rest assured, you, you abide in the truth. Here's what it looks like. It looks just like Jesus looked. You're doing these sort of things, then then time out, take a rest. And if if your heart, if your heart is bouncing around in your chest some days, wondering, wondering if he could really love me, wondering if he could really accept me, wondering if he could really forgive me for those long past sins or those sins just yesterday or just this morning, then guess what? God is greater than your heart. And even more than that, He knows everything. Our friend Brian Holland, who's filled in here for me a couple times, Chris, you'll know this. Chris uh, helped Brian, I think, even formulate this, this phrase. God knows us completely and yet loves us still. Do you understand that? Do you understand the power of that? I think that's what John's saying here. Even, even when your heart challenges you, on who you really think you are, sometimes you've got to check your own conscience and tell your own self as if you were on trial with your heart as the accuser and you as the defendant and God as the judge. You've got to be able to say, no, hold on. My heart feels this way. My conscience is kind of pulling me this way. It's, it's checking me on this. But God, what do you say? What do you say as the ultimate judge? Because sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes my own heart as an accuser is wrong. I, I can't really say it better than uh, John MacArthur said it, so I'm just going to read what he said. And if John MacArthur, if you know John MacArthur at all, um, Seth, you'll amen this for me. If John MacArthur can use these kind of words, I feel really good, okay? Listen to what he says. Because, because John MacArthur is really black and white. He could, be, he could be almost harsh sometimes. Amen? Anybody read some John MacArthur? He could be almost harsh sometimes. But listen, listen to how John understands MacArthur understands Apostle John's intent in this passage. God sees believers' greatest and most profound failures. And He knows far more about their weaknesses than even their own consciences do. You know that? God knows your weaknesses even better than you do. That's a scary thought. Yet, God has forgiven those who by faith in Christ have been adopted into His family. So He knows my, he knows my sin better than I know it. Even if my heart begins to convict me, it's never been a surprise to God. He knows me completely and yet loves me still. Yet God has forgiven those who by faith in Christ have been adopted into His family. Moreover, He is at work in their hearts, continuing to cleanse them from the sin that still lingers there. That's what God's up to. He looks beyond the remaining sin and sees the holy affections He has planted in them that demonstrate the transformed natures of His children. Therefore, even when overwhelmed by their sinfulness, believers can say with Peter, Lord, You know all things. You know that I love You.
Verses 19 and 20. Sometimes, John says, our hearts, our conscience will condemn us. But rest assured, little children, God knows you better than your heart or your own conscience knows you. And God is greater than your heart or your conscience convictions. And He knows everything. In verses 21 to 24, He's going to say not when our conscience condemns us. He's now going to talk about when our conscience does not condemn us. And He's going to give us three great hopes. Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. So he's already told us we have now assurance. He knows us and he knows everything about us. Verse 21, when our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Not only that, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases. And let me just say here as an aside, I'm not going to get too far into the weeds on this, that does not mean in context here that if we decide to pray for uh, Alexis for Christmas that it will show up in your driveway. Maybe it will. That's not how this works. It doesn't mean you could drive through traditions this afternoon and pick out the biggest house and pray for it and rest assured that it will be yours by Christmas. That's not how this works. A guy named um, Sky Jathani wrote a book called The Divine Commodity. Interesting title. The Divine Commodity. He said this, The abundance of our definitive words about God shows that we don't view Him as a great mystery anymore, but as a sterile calculation without ambiguity or obscurity. Not surprisingly, this definitive God usually conforms nicely to our personal desires and even politics. The resurgence of the prosperity gospel movement is one sign of this. It's quoted in a Time article titled, Does God Want You to Be Rich? Television preacher, I'll delete the name, said this. Who would want to get in on something where you're miserable, poor, broke, and ugly, and you just have to muddle through until you get to heaven? I believe God wants to give us nice things. The author says she has a point. Who would want an uncontrollable, mysterious, and holy God when you could have a genie in the Bible? Beyond the name it and claim it crowd, the desire for a definitive God explains our attraction to book titles like The Ten Prayers God Always Says Yes To. So that's not John's. That's not John's angle. I mean, in the context here, you you, you can't you can't make that leap. But he is he is seeking to give his little children some assurance here. Chuck Swindoll put it this way. He says, first in this passage, we should make note that when our conscience accuses us, we should look back and ask why. Second, when our heart affirms us, we should look around and see why. And third, when the Spirit assures you, you should look within and know why. We get promises here in these verses. We get assurances here in these verses. We get confidence. That word confidence means openness, frankness, a freedom of speech, an ability to be at ease while still being respectful in the presence of something or someone great. In the military, it's, it's, it's the idea of a, of a junior officer or an enlisted personnel being able to walk into the office of the admiral or the general, offer due respect, but know that they're welcome in that place. We receive confidence. When our conscience doesn't condemn us, we reap three great benefits. Confidence towards God, answers to prayer, and a reassurance from the Spirit. Look at what it says. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments, do the things that are pleasing in His sight, 
by the way, those aren't commands. Those are just facts of the matter. Remember we said that last week? There were no commands in last week's passage. There are none here. These are just facts of what it looks like to be a Christian. We keep His commandments and we do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Verse 23, this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He, meaning Jesus, has already commanded us. The word commanded there, this is the commandment. It's singular. How many commands does He seem to give us? That we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. That's two, right? John says, no, that's one. Did Jesus give them as one or two? He gave them as one. Here's the command. That we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and love one another. That's, that's the fact of the matter. Those are our marching orders. That, that's, that's essential equipment that comes standard with your Christianity. It's not optional. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him. There's that idea of abiding again. But not only does does it say that you abide in Him, but it says that He will abide in you. We know this, that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. We get the Spirit residing in us. Hebrews 4.16 comes to mind, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Psalm 139 comes to mind, O Lord, You have searched me and You know me. Does God know you? He does. Rest assured, He knows you. The psalmist says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. And you are intimately acquainted with all my ways, even before there is a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, You know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't fathom it. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Little children, that's how, that's how God knows us. We rest assured. Why? We rest assured knowing this. That the picture he painted in 11 through 18, it looks like us. Now, if it doesn't look like you, then you fall into a category that you, you, you have to start asking yourself. Should I be concerned? Those who were the original readers of John's letter in the church, those, those voices that were even inside the body, that were going in... in Strange directions. They, at this point, have to be asking themselves, well, that's not what my life looks like. I thought I could do anything with my life. And John said, no, you can't do anything with your life. I mean, we should look like Christ. He, he lived sacrificially. He let go of his life. You've got stuff and you're not even letting go of it. How, how do you claim to be his? And so, and so those who are listening, they have, they have some twisting going on in their own heart. But John would have you and I who are under the hearing of this teaching, he would have us rest assured. He would have us be fully confident. And he would have you and I know that, listen, even when your heart starts to take you in a direction, your, your conscience starts to take you in a direction, maybe as it's checking your spirit and as it's supposed to work, you better bounce that off of the, the Holy Spirit. You better bounce that off of the Spirit that lives in you. And you better bounce it off of the truth that your life is to be anchored to. I think that's why he says at the beginning of this passage, we will know by this that we are little children, that, that we love not just in word or with our tongues, but indeed in truth. We'll know by this that we are of the, what? Truth. You've got to anchor your conscience and your heart to the truth. So let me end with a personal word. You might imagine that in the uh, last six months, my heart is... My heart has had lots to say to me. And um, maybe your heart has had a lot to say to you as well. Sometimes in life we have regrets, don't we? Sometimes in life we second guess, don't we? Sometimes in life our heart gets so twisted and confused and we don't know if it's our conscience, we don't know if it's the Holy Spirit, we don't know if it's the adversary. We don't know who's speaking to who in this great trial that seems to be going on inside our own hearts and our minds. It would seem that John would have us 
to come to a place where we could rest, where we could be confident. It would seem that the only place he would know that we could find that is in the truth. A.W. Tozer, I've given you this quote many times over the years, one of my favorite quotes. A.W. Tozer said this, the most important thing about us is what comes to mind when we think about God. The most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you stop for a moment and in your heart, in your conscience, you think about God. What does He look like? Who is He? Is the old guy upstairs that is completely indifferent to your state? Is He the taskmaster that that yields a an extended whip all the way from his throne down to your back? Is he the one that condemns you and looks at every one of your faults and highlights them so that you know so well your weaknesses that that you wouldn't even raise your eyes to look in his direction? Is that the God you think of? What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. I would amen that. But I've also come to understand over the years that that maybe this is true. This wasn't Tozer, this is me. The second most important thing about us is what comes to mind when we think about us. Before we came to Christ, before you were in Christ... The adversary would tell you lies about who you are. It might have sounded something like this. You know, you don't need forgiveness. (laughs) Saved? Saved from what? You're fine. I mean, you're better than that guy over there. You're better better than your brother or sister. You're better than your neighbor. I mean, look at that guy. What comes to mind when we think about ourselves is maybe the second most important thing about us. Before we came to Christ... We probably thought more highly of ourselves than we ought. Or it could have been that he lied to us and and pushed us so deep down that we thought there was never, ever, ever going to be any way that a God in heaven could be merciful towards me. We thought that if he looked at us for who we are, he would be in such disgust that he would run the other way, that he would pass over us until we heard the gospel, that the gospel says that it's nothing in you that he's searching for. That our salvation is by grace through faith. Not by our own good deeds or works, lest any of us should turn around and brag about how impressive we must have been to God, right? That's just not how it works. That's good news, isn't it? It is. That's the gospel. There's a danger on this side of the gospel as well, isn't there? Now that you are in Christ, maybe the second most important thing about you is what you think about yourself when you think about yourself. And every now and then, your own conscience, your own heart, that fickle thing inside of you, it's not completely tied to the truth. It's not completely informed by the truth in God's Word. And so, so it flies in directions that it doesn't need to fly into. Maybe, maybe your life was, was so directed as a child that there are, there are things in your heart that you just can't get over or can't get past or that are so ingrained in you that you've got these giant monster truck-sized ruts in your heart that you just can't seem to get out of no matter how much truth is preached to you, no matter how much, no matter how much grace is, is poured your way. You can't seem to get yourself out of that rut of despair, of guilt and shame. And so when you think about you, you just think, wretched man that I am. And Paul thought that way. Paul also knew, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Because he doesn't see me that way anymore. When he looks at me, he sees his son. I'm robed in his son's righteousness. His son clothed himself in my sinfulness. 
took on my sin so that I could take on His holiness, His righteousness. And so, little children, hear me. If your heart condemns you, understand God is greater than your heart. God is greater than your heart. I'm so glad that when my own heart accuses me, God, the great and mighty judge, can sort through all the facts, all the motives, and overrule my own heart by the truth of His Word, thus freeing me from condemnation and fear of punishment. One of the coolest things I've, I've experienced with God, especially in recent days, are those moments when, when I, in my own heart and my own mind, my conscience flags something in my own life and says, listen, this isn't quite right. And then the Holy Spirit comes along and says, yeah, that's not quite right. But then, but then the adversary would take that thing that even the Holy Spirit agrees that's not quite right and push me in this direction and saying, you better get as far away from God as you can. But then, but then the Father comes in and He says, no, 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 don't go that direction. Come this direction. Draw nearer to me. Listen, I know you completely. And I always have. I wasn't fooled by your goodness when I saved you. So if something happens here, don't let it push you back in that direction. You see, God has adopted us knowing our sinfulness in the past, in our present when He saves us, and also all the way into our future glory. He knew all of your sinfulness. All of it. All of it. All of it. Pray with me. As you're sitting there, take a moment and let your conscience do do its ordained job. And ask yourself that second most important question. What do you think about when you think of you? Does that line up with what God thinks about when He thinks about you? If you're like me, maybe as you sit there and you ponder that question, you could amen with me that sometimes... My own heart my own heart condemns me. It accuses me and it heaps guilt and shame upon me. conscience accuses me make this your prayer I will look back and ask exactly why when my heart affirms me I will look around and see why when the spirit assures me I will look within and know why Heavenly Father, thank you for um, for saving us from even ourselves. We think we know ourselves pretty well, but sometimes we we confuse ourselves. Sometimes um, we need your help in knowing exactly who we are. We need a reminder of how amazing your grace really is. It's so amazing that it not only could cover our past and our present, but it has already covered our future. And Lord, I I thank you for those moments, even in my recent days, when your Spirit comes alongside me, even as I stumble, and it says, draw near, come closer, don't go further away. 
Lord, you know me better than I know myself. I ask on behalf of the congregation that where we are uh, ignorant to your truth, that you would educate us. Where your truth escapes us, you would enlighten us. Lord, anchor our conscience to your word, to your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, who is our cornerstone. Amen. Why don't you spend just a moment before we leave. It's very easy to, uh, at this point, as often we do, I would just say, uh, we are dismissed. Have a great week. We're going to do one more song just to give you a moment. Um, decide in your own heart and mind what you, what, you, what you have to do with John's words today. What you have to do with God's words today. It's all too easy just to get up and go right back to where we were an hour ago. But that would be a wasted hour. So take a few moments and um, figure out what's next. If you need help, come on to the altar. Someone will pray with you. If you want to take communion, come to the table, take communion. If you want to sit, sit. If you want to stand, stand. Don't, don't let the, uh, just this last few moments pass without nailing, nailing your own conscience to the wall. Tying it to truth. And I'll trust God and pray that He uh, is able to do the hard work in our hearts that uh, no preacher could do. Amen? All right, let's sing. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.